So good morning. I guess I'm out of practice of giving keynotes because I showed up today with no belt and no waistband. That's why I have this lovely arrangement on my jacket. Um, and I'm delighted to be here. Uh, thanks, John, for that introduction. And let me just echo what you said. The Attorney General's office, when it comes to not-for-profit, it's probably the one instance where we can say we're the government and we're here to help. Uh, and I, I send you greetings from Mary Beckman, who was helpful to me in getting ready for my comments this morning. Uh, who was head of charities. We call it public charities in Massachusetts. Um, that goes back to how old our history is around these organizations. Most states now call them not-for-profits or non-profits. It's still called public charities in Massachusetts. So uh, she is now the head of that bureau and oversees that division. But David Spackman, who came to help me when I first came in, and Mary, since then, who's still in the office, have echoed that theory that we want you to succeed, we want you to thrive, we don't want you to get in trouble, and if you think you're going there, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning, uh, how to anticipate maybe thin ice and when you're on it and what you might do uh, so you don't fall in, and then what you do if you do fall in. Uh, those are things that the organization at the Attorney General's office can help you with, uh, and they are committed to it, and frankly, they learn from you. Uh, if you've had a problem or you've seen a scam, uh, you've had some issues, that informs them on how they can help other not-for-profits also do well and thrive. And so I, I want to say I feel very welcome here today. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet Matthew. We were sitting at lunch a while ago. We were chatting and he said, oh, how would you like to come be our keynote? And I said, sure. Uh, that was a long time ago, uh, last October, and they said, oh, I have to do this keynote now on Friday, so I better get some comments together. Um, and, and I did, and I called on Mary, and I did a little refreshing for me because I've been out of being Attorney General now for almost a year and a half. Uh, but I loved that time as Attorney General, and I loved the work we did with our not-for-profits. It was inspiring to me, and, and frankly, not only am I your keynote today, I'm also now on the board of three not-for-profits, um, inspired by the work that they do and the incredible range. Uh, I now serve on the board of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, I am on the board of the Crittenden Women's Union, about to change their name to Empath, and their big fundraiser is tonight. So as a board member, I know what my responsibility is. I will be there. Um, but I'm really intrigued by the incredible work they are doing through a Gates Foundation uh, grant to look at uh, mobility mentoring for women in poverty to get education, to get out of a cycle of poverty. Uh, and I'm also on the board of the Children's Museum. And all of these organizations have incredible mission and focus that align with things that are important to me, reasons that I ran for office, that I served as a district attorney, that I did child abuse, that I uh, made sure as Attorney General that we were an advocate for the Commonwealth, but for the people of the Commonwealth also. And it was always near and dear to my heart that we could start and keep going the many non-for-profits in Massachusetts. Now, we have probably more pound-for-pound not-for-profits in Massachusetts than any other state in the country. And they are big, and some of them are small, and some of them are in between. And obviously, some of the issues that our large hospitals have are different from you know, the new uh, garden club that started up in the neighborhood. But the wonderful thing about the platform for not-for-profits is that it lets you take a great idea with the mission you care about, something that you want to do, and it gives you the ability to do a lot more than you could ever do on your own. 
The platform is flexible. It allows you the ability to bring in as much uh, other kinds of help and people as you need to to accomplish your mission. Um, but I think you all know that not-for-profits, a little bit like children's birthday parties, may be easier to get started than to keep going. And that's what today's conference is also about. Um, and sometimes they have to end uh, also. And uh, I was talking uh, with Mary about that because there is a lifespan. Some not-for-profits are designed to have a lifespan. And knowing and how we've made it a little bit easier in Massachusetts to dissolve them is also important for potential liability issues for board members. So it's important, I think, to be cognizant, uh, regardless of what role you play in your not-for-profit, of what is the mission? What is your mission? How are you going to accomplish it? And I enjoyed the earlier panel because all of those issues around risk management and cyber threats, all of those are obviously real issues in the for-profit sector, but equally true for you. And to be aware of what those risks are and how you can manage them under the umbrella you have with personalities, right? We know that these are, in many instances, volunteers uh, with sometimes volunteer staff. If you're in the middle size range, obviously you have paid staff. But you're still working in a difficult environment because it involves people, right? The job would be easy if you didn't have to manage the people. But you have board members who have joined, who have been solicited for different reasons. They have different levels of ability, skill, commitment to the organization. And being able to make sure that everybody's on the same page, rowing the same way, it's not an easy task, believe me. But it's part of the fun and it's part of the challenge. The thing that keeps you going, of course, is making sure you keep focused on your mission, you avoid your mission creep, and you avoid some of the problems that you've encountered before, you've heard about earlier today, and you're gonna hear about for the rest of the day today. But I know, as uh, Carla mentioned earlier, this organization sponsoring today, AAFCPA, is here to help. The Attorney General's Office is here to help, and you can be helpful to each other. So don't be afraid to ask questions and don't ever play ostrich. Um, that's how you can get in trouble. It's better to ask the question and come forward if you have some concerns. Just a quick comparison uh, to one other state. I just came back from a trip to um, Deadwood, South Dakota. Now you may well ask, why was I there? Um, the current president of the National Association of Attorneys General is from South Dakota, and he invited us all there for his presidential initiative on policing in the 21st century. Uh, and so I uh, am a big fan of the HBO series Deadwood. Anybody here seen that? It's, it's a terrific, terrific show. If you haven't, go back and watch it. It has everything in it. Uh, it has cowboys, Indians, uh, it has prostitutes, it has gambling, it has violence, um, and it has, uh, you know, uh, whatever you want. It has Shakespearean language. There's, it's a little dicey, but it's very um, Shakespearean. <laughs> At any rate, one of the reasons I went to Deadwood was I wanted to uh, see the burial ground of Wild Bill Hickok, who was shot in the back by Jack McCall uh, while he was playing cards at the number 10 saloon, which is still there, and particularly wanted to see the gravesite of Calamity Jane, uh, and I did do that. So what is the difference between South Dakota and Middlesex, uh, I'm sorry, in Massachusetts? South Dakota has a population of 800,000 people. Now, I was the district attorney of Middlesex County that had 1.5 million people, um, and we were not as big as South Dakota. There's a lot of space out there. 
Secondly, South Dakota has cowboys. Uh, you could see them in the airport. You could see them downtown. They wear black hats, by the way. They all wear black hats. And we have cowboys here in Massachusetts, but they don't wear hats. Um, <laughs> South Dakota has no taxes, no income tax. Uh, and so the AG was very proudly saying, well, we can't be accused of giving companies tax breaks because we don't have any taxes to give them. Uh, we do have taxes in Massachusetts, as you know. Um, uh, but, and we in Massachusetts have the Freedom Trail, uh, but they have Deadwood. And um, uh, they also are a state where they carve big faces into the sides of mountains. So we went to see Mount Rushmore. Who, is, who here has ever seen Mount Rushmore? I had never seen it before, um, and I wanted to see it since I was in South Dakota. It's a little weird, though, right? These big faces on the mountainside. There's a beautiful monument underway also to Crazy Horse uh, that is four times the size of these four presidents on the side of the mountain, and uh, they have been working on it for 70 years. Uh, that will not be done in our lifetime, but if you have a chance, you should go see it. Um, but it pointed out to me what an incredibly different culture, region, uh, South Dakota is from a place like Massachusetts, where I have spent my whole life, college, law school, I've always worked here, I've traveled a lot, but I've always lived in Massachusetts. I'm proud of it, and I'm proud of the particular way that we have, uh, with our one foot in the 21st century and one foot in the 18th and many issues, uh, and that's true sometimes in business, it can be true in law, uh, we cling to our traditions and we cling to our turf, but that's also what makes us different and strong. And uh, it's speaking of wonderful charities uh, that came out of our Boston Marathon bombing. I was going to use that as one example when we talk about uh, co-venturing. Uh, when you have a private sector and a public sector, there are some pitfalls to watch out for. But as we move into a new economy, an innovation economy, we are thinking differently about the way business works, the way we partner the way we get things done. And that's true for everybody in this room, and it's true for all of the folks behind us who, because of technology and the way they see the world, are thinking about different ways we can solve the world's problems, we can accomplish the kinds of things we want. I think you'll see that kind of innovation coming also to not-for-profit organizations. And I would argue that, unlike government, and in some ways for-profit, not-for-profits have that opportunity to be nimble, to use these new innovative ways of thinking about getting things done, to be successful, to accomplish your goals, uh, and to get your boards and others engaged in what your mission is. And that's one thing that makes Massachusetts different, I think, from most other states, that we have that innovation, thoughtful approach, caring approach. And a lot of people think New Englanders are maybe not that friendly or cold-hearted, uh, but people here care. They don't always show it, but they do care. And one of the ways they show it is through their philanthropy, through their giving, uh, through their giving in their communities, and through their not-for-profits. And so it makes it a great place um, to be involved in what's going to happen. I think we have a challenging and exciting future ahead with the way, again, technology has changed the way we think and the risks it provides. But let's focus on, as we said earlier, the opportunities it gives us to do the kinds of things that this is about. Remember, technology is just a means to an end. If you have your eye on your mission and what your uh, charity is about, what your not-for-profit is about, technology is a huge tool that you can do. 
use to make it easier, to make it better, to make it more transparent. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is the um, the portal. And I uh, was talking to Mary about this, the single portal multi-state charities registration. And she said, you know, only a bunch of uh, uh, bureaucrats could come up with that acronym, MRFP, the MRF. It's, it sounds a little bit like a Smurf character. Uh, um, but this is, this is an undertaking that occurred when I was Attorney General, and I remember saying, hey, this would be great. Massachusetts would love to help to be one of the states that's involved in this effort to see if we can do a couple of things. With a single portal, we'll be able to maximize efficiency, data transparency, and information sharing. It makes it a lot easier for not-for-profits and for the public, frankly, who want to do uh, searchable, inter who need us and want a searchable and interactive format. And if this works, state filing fees will be collected and dispersed to states through the single portal. What it means is for any of you, and many of you now, even though you're based in Massachusetts, may do work in other states with the opportunities you have through the internet, on the web, to, through an electronically filed Form 990, the, this system will enable the regulators to combine the 990 data with the state registration data in one place. The 12 pilot states, including us, and California, Illinois, Alaska, Colorado, Connecticut, Hawaii, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, New Hampshire, and Tennessee um, have just started this in November. And I don't know if they have a date to report on their pilot program, but the hope is that trying it out, and I'm a big believer in pilots. By the way, it's a great idea even for not-for-profits. If you're trying to do one thing, try it small, see if it works before you commit the whole uh, uh, not-for-profit to it. This pilot program, if it's successful, uh, will allow for much greater efficiencies for everybody involved. Those who benefit from not-for-profits, those who give money to them, those who run them, those who run the boards. It's um, supported by the National Association of Attorneys General, uh, the, Stu the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, have invited proposals for grants to fund this. And so I think it's a very exciting way that new technology uh, can help make uh, as we spoke earlier this morning on the panel, uh, your, your own not-for-profit more accountable, help you keep better track of what your information is, but also will be more efficient and will be easier. Um, by the way, I mentioned Massachusetts, uh, where uh, we have a huge number of not-for-profits throughout the state in, in healthcare and education. Um, one other place I think is very interesting is Hawaii. I'm, I'm friends with the Attorney General former Attorney General from Hawaii, who actually sued the Bishop Trust, if you're interested in this. Um, you know, the trust had almost all of, a huge amount of property on the island, ran the island, uh, and she, uh, to her political detriment, actually uh, went after the trust in a lawsuit. And uh, there's some interesting stories about Attorneys General taking a stand uh, to make sure that not-for-profits are doing what they are supposed to be doing and that they are following their mission uh, and that they are uh, following the laws. So a couple of the things um, that Matthew asked me to talk about um, in addition to the portal um, was Senator Grassley. Now how many of you also watch The Good Wife? Any, any fans of The Good Wife here? Okay. Um, in, in that, what I think is an amazing TV show, um, 
recently, uh, the former governor, Florek, was running for president, and it was in real time. So they had him in Iowa doing the full Grassley. Anybody know what that is? You go personally and visit every single county in a short period of time. And so Governor Florek did that. He lost, by the way. He did not become president of the United States uh, on TV. Um, but Senator Grassley uh, has been a great watchdog over not-for-profits. And uh, depending on your point of view, um, it's welcome because there should be accountability for not-for-profits. I believe that there should be accountability. Some of them are very big, have a lot of money, have huge endowments, um, get great tax breaks and tax incentives, um, and we always want to make sure that they are also pursuing their mission. I think originally this started uh, when Senator Grassley became aware that boys and girls clubs were getting large, federal, uh, large amounts of federal funding uh, in order to expand their organizations, but he also found that they were closing certain of them and opening more to uh, not to expand, but to uh, reallocate. And he was also uh, annoyed, I think, that the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club had a compensation package of more than $900,000, and that was in 2008. That was pretty big. That is one of the things, by the way, uh, that has gotten our attention, other AGs and regulators' attention, is the issue of compensation. Uh, and it's, it's proportional. You know, we look at what the mission is and what the responsibilities are and the need for that not-for-profit to compete in the, the for-profit world. For instance, in Massachusetts, um, most of your health insurance companies are organized as not-for-profits. That's not true in most other states. And if you're looking for a CEO for your uh, healthcare insurance, you're going to be competing nationally with for-profits. And so those are all things we take into account. On the other hand, uh, there are uh, limits uh, in terms of the reasonableness of compensation that boards are responsible for to look at. And anyway, Senator Grassley was very concerned. Um, he has not passed any legislation around this, though. But I say this to say that since that time he began this, looking at large not-for-profits, their endowments, their tax breaks, and their compensation, that has spread to more uh, inquiry, more scrutiny over other not-for-profits, not just in healthcare, but particularly in education. Uh, and I think, as you've seen, proposals to tax endowments or to change tax breaks, this is at the federal level now, uh, especially when the economy is tough, everybody looks around to see if we don't want to raise taxes, where else could we get revenue? Uh, and the, uh, the view to some institutions, I won't name any of them here, but there are some in Massachusetts who have huge endowments in the education field. You can probably guess. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they uh, are increasingly under scrutiny uh, for the tax breaks they get as well as the size of their endowments. And in a little issue I'm gonna flag for you in education here, and I'm, I'm, uh, I can see that as we talk about the cost of education, as attorneys general have gone after for-profit education institutions, including under my administration and, and under Attorney General Healy's administration, uh, in the not-for-profit world, there's an increasing growth of the haves and have-nots. Uh, and as we look at the cost of education, access to education, I think there's going to be an increasing scrutiny on how certain colleges handle 
their endowments, handle their access to students, uh, and how do we, if we as a country believe in a good education for everybody and access, and the not-for-profit is to uh, reach that mission, I just think you'll have that inquiry uh, much more strongly, not just in Massachusetts, but across the country. Um, and uh, Cappy Hill, who's currently the president of Vassar, has done some writing recently about this. If you're interested in this topic, just Google her and you'll find some of her articles. She was a year behind me in college. Uh, she was at Harvard for a while. She's a terrific administrator and um, thought leader on this. And she said, if we're really going to change income inequality in this country, we have to have four-year colleges that will allow in not just the children of the wealthy, uh, but who will let in those who are the most talented. And that means looking at endowments, that means looking at need-blind funding, uh, and that is a topic ahead for educators, I think, that we'll have to come to grips with as we deal with who has, who are the haves, some ways who are the haves and have mores in education. The have-nots have already closed, some of them have already closed, so that will continue to be a big issue. Um, one of the other things I just wanted to touch on this morning uh, is the Charleston Principles. Um, they are called the Charleston Principles because NAG and NASCO happen to be in Charleston, South Carolina, when they uh, devised these. Um, they're not, I don't think they're particularly controversial, particularly now, because uh, they were devised on March, March 14, 2001, and they were guidelines on charitable solicitations using the internet. If you can remember back to 2001, the internet was a big new thing in some ways, and it was even more the Wild West than it is now. Uh, we, were, we used it, we were afraid of it, we didn't know what it was, um, and we didn't know how to regulate it or police it. So these principles really say if you are a charity and you are going to solicit online, uh, you may come under the jurisdiction of any state that you reach. It changed it a little bit in terms of uh, if you were the Mass AG and you were a charity lo located in Massachusetts, um, we didn't have a lot of jurisdiction unless there was widespread either mailing, television, or other solicitation of people in Massachusetts. But I think, uh, particularly in New England, the use of different means of soliciting funds for your charity has changed. And I think it means, as, a, as an organization, you have to assume, as a practical matter, you may come under the jurisdiction uh, of any of the states in which you reach through the internet that is available, and you may need to look at whether you have to register in other states. I say that not to scare you, but to take a look at that. And if you have any questions on it, I used to say you can call my office. Now I'm going to say call Maura Healy's office. Um, but she and uh, Mary Beckman have welcomed that. And that is true of anything that I say now uh, that I don't know the answer to. I'm going to say call Mary Beckman or call Attorney General Healy's office. Um, but think about that in pursuant to the conversations this morning on the uh, panel, the cyber issue isn't just about protecting yourself from fraud or threat. It, it also uh, enlarges perhaps your the jurisdiction over which other agencies may look to inquire or regulate you. So I just uh, give you that to think about uh, as you move forward in this innovation economy and in this um, internet age. So um, one of the, uh, the things I wanted to mention briefly is uh, the co-venture piece, as I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I think as we 
change of organizations as we have more interaction actually between government and the private sector or between the not-for-profit and the uh, for-profit sector. I think those are good things, but I think that they need to be approached with the idea uh, of what does that mean for your not-for-profit if you are partnering with a for-profit. I'll preface this by saying if you're thinking about doing that, um, you should uh, either go to the Attorney General's office or maybe check with an attorney about what uh, that means in terms of your registration and how that's handled. The main concern is this, that a not-for-profit has uh, enormous benefits uh, and uh, tax breaks and less regulation in some ways than for-profits do. And I think what regulators are concerned about is that the merging of these or a co-venture uh, might not pay attention to what each's responsibilities are and that you are still a not-for-profit even though you're working with a for-profit and there will be obligations that come out of that. Uh, Mary and I talked a little bit about, because this came up with the One Boston Fund. Remember there was John Hancock and there were other private funders for that, but there also was an enormous outpouring, not just from Massachusetts, but from around the world, and much of the money came in through the website into that. Um, in the end, because we felt that there was so much transparency, because it was so focused and it was so easy to see what was going on and it had a beginning date and an end date, we did not uh, issue an opinion or require separate registration for that. But I think uh, because much of this work is complaint driven, in other words, the Attorney General's office doesn't visit every not-for-profit every two years and say, you know, we're going to audit you. It's either complaint driven uh, or self-reported. Um, we urge you to think about what the responsibilities will be if you decide to move forward in some kind of a co-venture. Uh, and particularly if it's a longer term, you've got the issue, issue of mission and mission creep and who's responsible for what. So I just raise that for a changing landscape. Uh, don't not do it, because I think there's lots of opportunities for you to be creative in fulfilling your mission, but it may create other responsibilities for your not-for-profit. So let's uh, talk about thin ice for a minute, okay? What is it that we see at the Attorney General's office most of the time? And I will say this, uh, I think that the internet threat and the cyber issues are big. Uh, the good news, I think, is that North Korea is probably not trying to hack into most of your websites. Um, I can't say that definitively because uh, who knows what North Korea or China are doing. Uh, I know that as I work in the for-profit world around this cyber issue, uh, we are increasingly aware of the uh, endless, you know, millions per second attempts by foreign sovereigns to get information or to see if they can hack in. In other words, it's not just about getting private information for credit cards now, it's about sovereign governments who want to see can they penetrate government, which my guess is they can probably do that better than they can do Microsoft or uh, Chase Manhattan. Uh, but they are constantly trying. Uh, you may or may not be subject to that, but your biggest threat is still going to be your volunteers, your board members, the people in your organizations. Uh, I recall back when I was district attorney looking at a, a Special Olympics case where the father and daughter who ran this organization basically had two accounts. For every $100 that came into the account, 50 went into one account and 50 went into their account. And they did this successfully and, and uh, took $2 million over a period, a short period of time. 
the bigger the charity, the more popular you are, the more public, uh, and the more money that comes in, the more likely you are to have people uh, who are well-meaning, but who don't do the oversight appropriately of people who have access to the funds. And that means whether it's the checkbook now or whether it's online, that's why this audit piece and what the panel was talking about earlier is so important. Because when you least expect it, and I found it in small family businesses, I found it in not-for-profits, everybody's there for the right purpose, right? Except somebody isn't. And it's very easy, if you aren't careful, if you don't do those checks, to have the biggest threat from people in your own organization. It's always been true, I think it always will be true. Uh, and so we can't say that enough, trust but verify. Um, and look, often these organizations start small and they grow and people get excited about the growth, but that's the part you need to pay attention to. So you need to make sure that you have ways to check that money, check what's happening, uh, those are the biggest complaints that we get in the Attorney General's office. Um, the other things that we worry about, obviously, are diversion of assets by trustees. Uh, when there uh, is money that is taken that isn't properly overseen, um, it's, it's, it's more complicated depending upon what the transaction is. And that's why any questions about something you're going to do about major assets, if you're joining with another charity, uh, it's always best to check with the Attorney General's office, and they're very good, and they will be on your side about what's the best way to go forward with what you want to do. The other big issue, one of the other big issues is conflicts of interest, obviously. Uh, quick example, uh, a board member, uh, it, it, a board member of a not-for-profit uh, actually uh, runs a for-profit provider service, and he then contracts, he or she contracts with the board he's on. Um, happened more frequently until uh, recently, but it's still a big issue about uh, the arm's length that both the staff and board members need to have with the not-for-profit and any service providers or outside providers that you engage. And the arm's length means not alligator arms. See, you've all seen that Geico ad, right? The alligator can't get the check. It means human length arms. It means Barack Obama length arms. Um, you uh, really have to, uh, and it's very easy, believe me, that, uh, you know, someone's on the board, well-meaning, saying my company can do this, my business can do this. Uh, there is this issue of self-dealing that you need to be aware of, you need to be alert to. Uh, it is uh, the other way people get in trouble, other ways you can get in thin ice and fall in, is just failure to do things, right? When I, uh, when I grew up as a kid, went to Catholic school, it was the errors of uh, commission, things you did that were wrong, but the stuff that kept you up at night were the errors of omission, right? The things you didn't do. What did I not do today? Um, and when I, I used to teach uh, first year research to law students, I would tell them that. You will get in trouble not for the research you did, but for the research you didn't do. Which case didn't you find? What didn't you check? Because you'll be in front of a judge and they'll say, well, what about this case or that? So the errors of omission uh, will keep you up at night, and it's also an issue for not-for-profits. If you don't keep good records, if you don't keep minutes of your meetings, if you don't keep the ways in which, if there's a complaint or a problem, someone else can come in and audit, right, Carla? You, you can't, then you can say, well, you can't prove anything. Well, that's true, but you're responsible for keeping those records so you can show that you did the right thing or 
if there's a mistake, as we said, we'll help you fix it. But failure to keeping, keep those records is one of the biggest, biggest problems we see. If we, at the, I say we still, if, we, if the Attorney General's office uh, discovers something that's just negligent, failure to keep records, uh, lack of fair dealing, conflict of interest, more often than not, they will work with you to change that. They'll involve training, maybe restitution, um, maybe some change in your governance rules. Take a look at your bylaws, by the way, and make sure that they're up to date for your committees particularly and your governance committees because you are responsible for your own governments and make sure that you have those bylaws and that your board members, new ones, they rotate through at different times. You can't do a training with some board members and then assume everybody knows it. People forget, new people come in, that has to be constant. But if the falling through the thin ice is bad or has a bad intent, if there are dollars stolen, if the dollars are high, uh, if uh, it is looks like it's intentional, that is a matter that may go to the, the DA and the police. And I understand completely that if you are a mid-size or a larger organization, and you found that someone in your organization has stolen from you, you have a dilemma. We're gonna look bad, no one will give us money anymore, no one will trust us. I understand that, but you also have to understand that you can't just quietly let somebody go and not address that, where that person may go on and do it, as we found in the Special Olympics uh, example, that father and daughter had done that someplace else, and then moved on, because the prior organization didn't wanna uh, have the, the bad news. Um, uh, it's a tough, tough decision, but you have to ask yourselves, what's your responsibility to the organization, to your donors, to the mission, uh, to be transparent and to try and hold that person accountable, particularly not to let that person go on to the next organization and, and pull the same scam. Um, okay, so I, I, wanna I do wanna leave time for questions. I always say, you know, a, a, a lecture is a long answer to a question nobody asks, and I don't, I don't, I don't want this to be that, and I, I'm running into my territory. Um, the, the last thing I think I wanna say is this. Right now, good news, bad news, probably good news, is that what the Attorney General's office does is usually complaint-driven. As I mentioned earlier, we don't have an enforcement team, we don't have people go out and audit, we respond to complaints from consumers, from others, uh, and that's what we look at. If we see a pattern from a particular organization, then we'll do, then the AGO will do an investigation. But what's happening, I think, and we started this when I came in, because uh, I came into, uh, I became Attorney General in 2007. Frankly, most of the records were still on file cards in our office, and if you wanted to search a charity, you had to go find that file card if you could. Um, we were lucky to get a big grant from the legislature um, to put all that, start to put all that online, to make it searchable, to have the system that we have now. And I know that AG Healy and uh, Assistant Attorney General Mary Beckman are interested in getting more data-driven ability to look at uh, uh, patterns, to look across organizations so they can start to see for instance, what is the percentage of the net revenue relative to salaries in the organization? Uh, what are, if, are there significant mechanisms that are used to inflate the gross revenue or to justify or mask compensation? Uh, that will be more data-driven uh, than complaint-driven, and it requires, I think, that you all understand there'll be more transparency on what organizations are doing. This data will also, as they compile it and look at it, 
be able to look for party-related transactions, the kind of conflict of interest I talked about. And this will allow them to get bad actors systemically rather than just responsibly to complaints. Uh, it's going to take a while, and they're still working on it. But I think overall, it's better for the public. It's better uh, for the charities that are doing the right thing. Remember, you do compete with everybody else for the same uh, a certain number of charitable dollars. And my argument would be, you all have an interest in making sure that public charities, your not-for-profits, are playing by the same rules, that you're being fair, um, because you all want to get people engaged and willing to give you money. Just as in the business world, I say to businesses, used to say as AG, now sometimes as their lawyer, I say, uh, you know, it's not a fair system if somebody's breaking the rules. And that's what this is about in the end, to make sure that in Massachusetts, Commonwealth that you know we've all chosen now to live and work in, that I'm uh, very fond of, particularly because of this issue, that we can make not-for-profits a real thriving part of what our future is. And that future is really limited. I think it's incredibly exciting, as I had the chance last semester to spend at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School. I saw all these terrific, bright young people um, who unlike other generations who wanted to go just to Wall Street, they want to change the world. They want to get better health. They want to get better politics. They want to get uh, better education. They want to have better access. They want more diversity. Uh, and that is the generation, and I would argue through not-for-profits is the mechanism and the vehicle by which they can do that. So if you're despairing about the, um, the way government is going these days, hold on, because uh, it'll, it'll get better. It always does. Um, and besides that, we have a terrific opportunity here in Massachusetts um, to use these vehicles to pursue that future um, that I think can be very, very bright. And there's no place better to do it than in Massachusetts. So with that, I'm happy to get questions. If I can't answer them, Carla can. And if she and I can't answer them, I know A.G. Healy can. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you touched briefly, you spoke a little bit about strategic mergers. And I was wondering, um, from a procedural standpoint, if you wanted to form, say, a management company, which below it stood two organizations, what procedural conversations would you have, or would an organization have with the Attorney General's office ahead of time? to form that management company, and what documents do you need to put in place? Like, would there be bylaws or articles for that management company, we'll call it? Okay, good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because one of the things Mary had mentioned was um, for not-for-profits to also think about collaborating, because to avoid administrative overlap, or even personnel and other costs, there are ways you can collaborate while still maintaining your mission. So let me ask, is the umbrella organization a not-for-profit? So you have a not-for-profit umbrella and then two underneath. Um, those are the kinds of, that is the kind of thinking and those are the kinds of collaborative events that actually uh, A.G. Beckman says she really wants to push. That's a great idea uh, and you should all think about that, by the way, because one of the biggest tragedies is a lot of new not-for-profits start, um, easier to start, they keep going, they get expensive, and then they kind of fall by the wayside. But 
sometimes two or three can merge and save some of those costs while, while still complying with all the rules. Um, I would definitely check with the AG's office. I'm not, I'm not just saying that because I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, but um, Mary Beckman specifically said that is an area they are most interested in to help other not-for-profits do well. And so they could suggest to you what it means in terms of registration, in terms of the forms that you have to file with them. Uh, but it's clearly an idea that you all might think about as doing everything becomes more expensive, uh, but sharing uh, some things that you have in common while keeping your own mission may let you do that better. But good for you. Hi. Good morning. Uh, this is Stan Kaplan from the Jewish Cemetery Association. We, owned a lot of, we own a lot of land uh, for cemeteries, and some of which is part of a cemetery being used as a cemetery, some of it is in abeyance waiting to be used for a cemetery. And we find that municipalities these days are being very aggressive with nonprofits relative to the land use. Yes. And they want to tax us on land that we're not presently using, ah, that we're scheduled to be using as the cemetery builds out. Um, and of course, we go to the abatement, uh, mass abatement board and it just goes on and on and on uh, up, up the ladder to Superior Court. It's just very draining. It is. It's for, expensive and it's draining. Very draining and, and, and very expensive. Uh, how can the Attorney General's office mitigate or mediate in such, uh, such uh, circumstances? Well, that's a perfect example of where going to the Attorney General's office to say, we have this land, it, it's, you know, part of it we're using now, but part of it we want to use in the future, uh, and it, it is this syndrome I mentioned earlier, right? All municipalities are looking for sources of revenue, and so they're going to scrutinize, endowments are going to scrutinize your property, uh, and any chance. Um, but I, and I can't speak for Mary at this stage, uh, but she could help you look through. For instance, do you have specific plans as to when that will be a cemetery? Uh, she can look at the factual basis to help you make an argument with the municipality that this is land that comes within the uh, not-for-profit umbrella, that therefore should be all of it, you know, where the gravestones are and where they are not, should be treated as a not-for-profit. Some of it may be a factual question, you know, the terms of where the land came from, what's the bequest, how has that been managed, but also what are your plans now and what can you show the municipality to fight back on that? I would strongly urge you to contact her. Um, and she said to me specifically, you know, let people know we are here to help. And that's exactly the kind of problem that I know people have come to us with. Um, uh, the other kind of problem would be the land like that that you want to sell. It's a charitable asset. And that may be your best argument. I mean, you couldn't sell that property without getting the approval of the Attorney General, right? So you're getting stuck on both ends of it. So if it's a charitable asset, remember that also. Uh, I'm reminded of the, uh, the church in South Boston. It's one of our more interesting issues. We had a 17th century silver chalice that was priceless, but it, they, they couldn't use it. And they couldn't display it. It was too valuable, get stolen. Uh, and they wanted to sell it. And we gave approval for that because they needed to fix the roof on the church, and that made sense. But we are pretty good guardians of uh, assets that have been deemed to be charitable by will, by bequest. And so I think uh, if you call Mary Beckman, she can help you and tell her I said to call. Okay? <laughs> okay. Massachusetts has a very out-of-date nonprofit statute, which in turn relies on a superseded 
business law statute. New York adopted a new nonprofit statute which relies heavily on Sarbanes-Oxley, particularly in the areas of governance. Are there any plans to bring our statute in, in line with the 21st century governance standards and other? Not that I know okay. of. <laughs> and why is that? Um, it is a very good question. Um, I have a couple of, now I could talk for two hours on that, but per my earlier comment, uh, one foot in the 21st century, one in the 18th. Uh, our, the Massachusetts, we have one foot in each. And um, you know, our legislature tends to move on crises, uh, on things that have gotten their attention. Um, they can move very quickly on some things and very slowly on others. On average, there are 7,000 bills filed a year. Most of those will rarely get a hearing, never mind action. Um, there's not been a huge or uniform voice to say we need to uh, revise this, but I, I can tell you, um, I hate to say that we always follow New York, because we don't, they do things differently, and they are they have different setups for not-for-profits. There are some things New York does better than us. There are some things California does better than us. But uh, I would urge you, if you have specific ideas to reform and what you think should happen, and particularly if there's a template in another state, it's a good idea to raise um, with Mary, but also with the policy and government folks at the Attorney General's office. Um, get some folks in the room who are like-minded together, um, the AG or other legislators may be willing to start a discussion on that. I, I think some of the arguments that would make sense is it's a huge part of our economy, right? The arts, the culture, the healthcare. Um, we are outdated in many ways in the way we do uh, handle. We treat all not-for-profits as if they're the same size, and, and so there should be some exceptions for the smaller ones. It should make it easier. Um, it's a big project, though, I think, and the, the Massachusetts usually has a, you know, if it ain't broke, or at least I don't see it's broke, I don't have time to fix it right now. I don't mean that as a criticism, it's just the reality of daily life. And, um, but it's a, it, the place that would be your biggest advocate, I would think, would be the AG's office and Mary, who is very committed to these issues and who understands, you know, gee, maybe there's an opportunity in the next couple of years to lay the groundwork to modernize what we do around not-for-purpose because it will help us with the thriving of those institutions and it will help us be more transparent. Uh, and frankly, it's an economic driver in, in Massachusetts. If you can get them to understand it's an economic driver, you may get their attention. And I, 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 would, I would say that's a good argument to make, but I don't disagree with you that it might be time. Good morning. Um, I have a question regarding the conflict of interest that you were speaking about and the arm's length. Yes. And if you issue an RFP um, and a board member happens to own a business in that area and significantly underbids the competition, are you able to consider that? I, 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 am, I am on a little bit of thin ice here. Um, but I'm going to venture to say, yes, you can consider it. And one of the key things here is going to be the documenting and transparency involved with that. Um, you've done the RFP. The bid is the lowest. And look, it may be that you know, the bid is low because it's, it's he or she's a board member. And you know, so you are allowed to consider that. If you actually end up in that situation, it's, it's a good one to just run a theoretical by the AG's office. But um, the problem would be no bid, you know, the, the bid is actually at or above what you might have gotten otherwise. But if you're acting reasonably by getting bids and this is the lowest bid, 
uh, you're not prohibited from accepting that bid would be my uh, don't take it to the bank opinion at this stage of the game. Okay. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you for your words. Um, Fox News tells me there's an election coming up this fall. And, uh, what? Uh, I'm wondering what the risk is for not-for-profits, both uh, how they have to behave during the election season and also if there's any difference between the federal and the state law that may affect them, that may be a trap that we're not aware of. Thank you. Uh, okay, before you sit down, I give the mic away. I'm not sure. Are, what, what are you talking about in terms of donations to elections? No, whether or not, you know, emails within the firm supporting candidates. Oh. Uh, no, you can't do it? No. All right, there's your answer. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, I, the, look, the whole idea, you don't want to lose your 501c3 status, right? That is so. Um, I think you have to be very careful, as we have been in government, about political activity, use of assets in your organization for political activity. Uh, you certainly shouldn't allow uh, emails to send information about fundraisers or event. I mean, the only, you know, carve out here is First Amendment, right? If people are having a discussion and they want to do that, but around the fundraising political piece, I mean, just in general, given where this is going, it's probably better to keep talk of politics away from the a water cooler <laughs> to make sure that, uh, that was my joke. Um, <laughs> I, and I'm happy, does anybody else have an opinion on that? Carl is left, so uh, now I don't have any backup. Yes. Uh, really, a nonprofit can't do any type of, you know, campaign right. type of um, um, emails, um, you know, supporting the community, anything. You you want to stay away from anything related to to uh, political campaigns. You can do your lobbying around laws and so forth, and of course, there's rules around all of that too, and how much you can do. But anything with individual campaigns, don't touch it. Even if it's not just fundraising, right? Any yeah. political activity. Anything, anything. Organizing just rallies and stuff. Stay, Thank you. Stay away. Okay. Robert, what about social media? Uh, you shouldn't even do social media. Anything on anything that's coming, looking like it's coming from the nonprofit, will just has the risk of just cutting out your C3 status instantly. It's just not. Yeah. No tweeting at at yeah. nonprofit. Vote for X. I would say no. Right. If. You know, personally, obviously, you can do what you want on your own personal time, but you cannot do any of this on um, corporate time at all. The campaigns. Issues are different. Right. Yes. Campaigns. That's yes. correct. Issues are always different. Yeah. Exactly. The Alliance for Perfect. And can you just say the website again for everybody? Okay, good thing to check because this is going to be a heated election. I won't say anything more about that than that. All right? I, I thank you very much for your time today. Good luck. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.